brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hi, my name is Scott Carolyn, and my best friend, Lils Martin, hates musicals. I'm Lils Martin, and my friend and acquaintance, Scott Carlin, loves musicals. Wait, what? I don't like, I don't like begrudging for it or anything. Wait, I don't know. I said you were my best friend, and you just called me a friend and acquaintance? Yeah. I was working really, really hard on creating this podcast for you where I show you great movie musicals and bad movie musicals because I love you, but you want to be a dick. We were supposed to court this promo for Hell is a Musical, and what are we doing right now? Sounds like we're recording the promo right now. Hell is a Musical on the Zero Science Network. Be there. Welcome to Jukebox Zeros, where they don't do their job. Hey, welcome to season four of Jukebox Zeros. Hey, Coming at you. Whoa. That's my job, special guest Austin Scholl, who's here back on the program. <laughs> it's me again. And also me, very special co-host. Yeah. I'm Lils. And I'm Pat Trick. Oh, oh boy. So, well, welcome to season four Uh we're still we're still trapped. We're still trapped in in yep. in the uh, in the disease hellscape that we call uh, quarantine. America. Yep. Society has not returned from the brink of stupidity. No. In the uh, in the remaining month that passed by <laughs> since we last spoke. Yeah, uh, not a lot has changed in the past month. Uh, a few things have changed on my end, though. Yeah how'd you how'd you spend your month off, Pat? Uh, so yeah, uh, Corey Feldman. I'm assuming that this podcast is all the both of us ever do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had to find some things to do, uh, in between the podcast tapings. Uh, so Corey Feldman actually finally moved out, which was great. Uh, he's finally all officially moved out. He, I, I dismantled the cinnamon toast crunch silo the other day. Mm. Uh, it was a very solemn ceremony. We, we played taps on, um, <laughs> Viking funeral. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. You know, push it off to. Pushed it off into the crew. Push it off the roof. Yeah, uh, you should get like a, you should get like a simply safe or something installed so he doesn't come back this time. Yeah, that's a good idea. Going to change the locks. Um, and oh, I, I let him keep soft shumagoo, so the corpse is gone finally. Mm. The, it, the the smell that was happening in here is like finally. That, that that's the thing about like that's the thing about like e list celebrities crashing on your couch. They're like uh, they're like rats. 
Exactly and you discover once you discover one, then that means there's already a nest of them. Yeah, and, and you know, I did have a problem with with Billy Idol was here for for like a hot minute. And, um, yeah, like, you 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 should be careful. You might have to spray for like Scott Bayos or something like yeah. that. Oh, oh, Wes Scantlin. Uh, I got Scantlins on the couch oh, the other no. day. Yeah, there are a couple of them. Uh, they were yeah, they they are making that noise. <laughs> uh, pretty harsh. I, I there were there was like a whole nest of like four or five of them. Uh, had to scare them out. Uh, but yeah, thank, thank goodness they're gone. Uh, so this place is clean. The old factory is, uh, is mm. rid of, of any and all pests. It's mm. a fresh start for you. It is. Now yeah, you need to come up with a new smell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bringing it in. With how about, the new how about you, Austin? Have you ever had to deal with infestations of West Scantlin, a puddle of mud? Nothing happens to me. So luckily, no. <laughs> wow absolutely nothing that's incredible i didn't have uh i didn't have any infestations of also ran new metal artists during <laughs> my month off yes how was your month wills um it was fine sometimes i slept okay that that's that's what you're supposed to do according to doctors um, yeah that's that's what i've been told according to doctors you 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 put your body into the bed uh and you go sleepy times and then you yeah. wait. It's it's like a really long wait, but uh, you're supposed to be like passed out during it or something. That's normal mm. though. I think what you yeah. do is you you don't you run around uh, and, and like huff fumes all day, and then and then that makes you really <laughs> tired at the end, so that you pass out, and then you do it all again the next day. Now, what doctor are you talking <laughs> that, to? That's what doctors <laughs> recommend. I don't know. That's just what they say. Doctor Shiva. Doctor Shiva. Yes. <laughs> Who, uh, who, uh, lost. Yep. Good. <laughs> local, uh... That's a reference that Austin's probably not going to get, because he is not in New England. Uh, what nope. Local, uh, just crazy, like, right libertarian politician or something like that that, that runs every every so often for, for Senate. Hey, it's the apology section. <laughs> sorry we're being bad i'm i'm gonna apologize for us not getting to the fucking point (laughs) well it's how many episodes in yeah Yeah. we're past 50 episodes so we're allowed to just circle the drain really yeah i mean i was gonna do an overall apology for like never having any pre-show notes and i i'm actually gonna starting now season four uh really gonna try to have like more stuff prepared and uh I think it's it's going to sound a lot more forced, so uh, the, the quality <laughs> of the program will, you know, take a considerable hit. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. I, I do actually have like a legit apology this time around. Oh yeah. Um. So if you'll recall, during the season finale, we kind of had it out for our good friend Cat for basically stealing the show from us, out from under our noses. <laughs> Because legally, since she said the whole, like, at the end when we go, that about does it, I'm Lils, I'm Patrick, she chimed in with, I'm Kat, and that technically, but due to our bylaws, makes her a host of the program now. And then she got her lawyers on us and just stole the podcast out from under us. So there was a whole month where we 
did not have the podcast was not legally ours anymore. Yeah, who who knew the but, the Cat Verlico litigation team was like so shrewd? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we we talked it over with her. We bought her some Popeyes, and uh, we uh, really really got the bad end of the deal. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so like we can technically still record the podcast, but she gets uh, all the royalties, all the perks, and our, our new catchphrase has to be "cat is really cool." Yeah, it's it, it's part part of a uh, part of the writer as this is now an, an official Cat Verlico production .tm or something. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's not even zero science anymore. It's cat. Yeah, it's, science. it's just cat. Uh, I don't know. Somehow, I don't know. Us. We're we're gonna we're gonna try to relitigate that between now and the next episode. So maybe that won't still be the case. Yeah, this is the season Cause this, where because this because this seems like a much stupider running joke than I thought it would be. Yeah, I think like <laughs> well, season three is supposed to be like you know that that's like the the real up season where we finally hit our stride, and season four is where we start to hit like our that, legal battles and that, it really takes is, the wind out of our sails. That that truly is the real upsies, like you just said. <laughs> <laughs> the real upsies. I'm not sure that I said that, but uh, if, if I did, I'm I really heard. sorry, America, <laughs> that I said upsies. <laughs> I, I I swear that the schools taught me better than that. I swear. I swail. Oh you swail. I swail. I you did this, this album. This album title that we're doing today has has a big time doo doo swear in the title. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, should we get into it? Should we get into this incredibly naughty album that Austin picked out for us? Yes, very, very. Oh, you're naughty. blaming this one on me, huh? <laughs> yep. Well, well, this is your fear, and and it's coming to fruition. Now. <laughs> you uh, you shouldn't have told prophecy. us you were scared. <laughs> yeah. You I told us petrified. you were scared, and we're fulfilling on that. We're, we're manipulating that uh, that fear that you're having <laughs> and exploiting it to. Uh, Really, just for dumb jokes. Anyway, what are we yeah, doing that, today? Yeah, that, that's season four. Well, season four, jukebox zeros. We're jerks now. <laughs> we're just. I love it. We're just really mean. <laughs> we're, we're no longer like good Joe, boys. We're fucking. What, what's his face? The stew guy now, Adam Carolla. Oh God. <laughs> fucking stews and bracelets. Yep, we're we're just shock jocks. We're we're leaning into it hard. We're just jerks. Shirk jerks. <laughs> okay, so Stephen Thomas Erlewine of AllMusic.com has said of punk music, the Sex Pistols may have been the first British punk rock band, but the Clash were the definitive British punk rockers. Considering the wide-reaching range of influence and acclaim this act has commanded, it's hard to disagree with our bestest frenemy Stevie E on this one. For the ten years that they were a group, The Clash were a major influence on a wide plethora of bands and artists, expanding beyond even the confines of punk rock. In addition to pioneering the earliest sounds of the genre, along with acts like the Ramones and Sex Pistols, they're renowned for expanding the sounds and possibilities of punk throughout the 1980s, merging the traditional style with elements of reggae, rockabilly, hip-hop, new wave, ska, and more. The core quartet of The Clash, consisting of Joe Strummer on guitar and vocals, Mick Jones also on guitar and vocals, Paul Simonon on bass and vocals, and Topper Heaton on drums, would produce some of the most beloved and regarded punk albums throughout their career, including hallmarks such as their 1977 debut record, 1979's epic London Calling, and 1980's highly experimental Sandinista. They would subsequently be listed as one of the greatest acts of all time in general by Rolling Stone, VH1, The Times, and many others. In spite of their celebrated legacy, the band would dissolve in the mid-80s under a deluge of internal turmoil. 
everything from record label tampering, interpersonal squabbles, and dissatisfaction from touring, would lead to their breakup in 1986, but not before producing a particularly infamous record. 1985's Cut the Crap was said record, an album which was drastically re-engineered from its original sessions to feature new wave synths, chanting vocals, and drum machines. It would be disowned by Joe Strummer amidst a flurry of critical negative reviews. So strap in, everybody. It's time to cut the crap. <laughs> it's time to and listen flush to the sixth and final one. studio album by the Clash. You said this. So before, it's a crap. before. <laughs> oh, you. Yep. You okay? You, you said crap. There, Wait Pat? until you hear what I say about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's elevate the conversation a bit. So yeah, uh, the Clash. Before we, yeah, before we get into the album, we should probably just like talk about like how we feel about the Clash real quick. Uh, like, what's your relationship to The Clash, Austin? So, um, is it okay if I spin a bit of a yarn here? Go for it. So, I think I mentioned when I was last on the show, I got into punk rock. Like, that's where most of my interest orbits around. And I got into that in high school and everything tangentially related to it, partially because of, like, Guitar Hero and Tony Hawk. But one big moment that... I think broke my entire music tastes wide open was uh, my dad and I went on this two week drive to my late grandfather's farm in Iowa. It was just me and him in a blue pickup truck. There was only two not shit seats up front. And then mm. behind them, there were these two shit sideways seats that I barely fit in when I was small enough to fit in them. <laughs> but in that spot behind us, he had this huge purple tub full of CDs. There's a bunch of great new wave stuff in there. Oranges and Lemons by XTC, Greatest Hits of Devo, Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam and the Ants. And that's what we listened to on that whole trip. But um, I also had my own CD player and one of the CD, two of the CDs technically, that I really latched onto was the Essential Clash compilation. And I have a very distinct memory of being at a gas station in North Platte I'm in the truck, dad's out getting the gas, and I'm listening to Ivan meets G.I. Joe. And that's a weird esoteric image that's never left me. So when we got home, it wasn't long before I immersed myself in punk. And I credit The Clash, along with the Dead Kennedys, for making all of punk rock make sense to me. So whenever I think of what classic punk sounds like, before I even think of the Ramones or the Sex Pistols or even my personal favorite punk band, The Damned, I think of the first Clash album. So mm. prepping for this podcast has been fun. Going back and rediscovering a band I love in between listens to their sad, flatulent death. <laughs> How about you, Pat? Like in our group chat, you said you weren't really that well versed with the Clash. I'm not really. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I just haven't been interested in checking them out. Uh, I'm not really sure why. They were kind of always sold to me as being a uh i forget who said it but but they've been touted as the most important band of all time or something like that the only band that matters or the only band that matters or something like that and for some reason that really just rubbed me the wrong way so i just kind of had this thing in my head that they were super pretentious and and full of themselves and even when you know you hear about the sort of studio experimentation that they were doing I, i always just thought that it was like really indulgent even though i listen to plenty of other indulgent music yeah this is this is the biggest steely dan fan i know saying this yeah exactly (laughs) and it's it's kind of silly for for me to have uh 
not giving him a chance. And and, and that and Joe Stormer's voice is just hard uh, a hard hurdle for me to get over. Uh, but Austin was kind enough to put together a playlist. Uh, Wills, I'm not sure. Did you contribute to that as well? Yeah, I like like we both basically picked out half of the tracks. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and, and I listened through it, and uh, I kind of got a better sense of, of what these guys are about. And I I think saying that they're the definitive punk British punk rockers is pretty accurate. I think you can hear where a lot of different groups that that even I would go on and love, like the Replacements. Uh, uh, you know where, where they took a lot of influence from from these guys and and their sort of approach to punk music and what Austin was saying about like made punk rock make a little more sense like they weren't mm. they weren't just about the aesthetic they weren't just uh you know about the the message per se they they were trying to do some uh cool things musically and, and production wise that I that I can give them respect for and I, I getting to hear more of Joe Strummer's uh, songs and, and stuff I could I got a better sense of, of like where people celebrate him as a songwriter because he's he's got some tight hooks here and there mm. yeah they they they're best known as like the political heart of punk rock it wasn't majorly political until they integrated their socialist ideology into it but I don't think they get enough credit for also being like a creative epicenter in punk like they really brought in so many other things that helped punk to grow just out of being straight simplified rock. Right. They, they were incorporating reggae and, and electro and, and hip hop and, and all these different genres. They weren't just limiting themselves to, uh, you know, the three chord rah, 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 oi, oi, oi type stuff. Uh, they, they were doing some, some cool experimentation, which is, you know, all stuff that I'm into, especially circa 79, 1980, like, I, oh, yeah. you know, ton, tons of records I, I love from that era. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of intrigued to actually go through and, and check out the full albums rather than, um, you know, these few tracks that you had me listen to. Yeah. Um, as for me, I don't know if I'd necessarily call myself like a major super fan of them necessarily, but as far as like punk bands go they're definitely one that i hold in very high regard along with like dead kennedys and other sort of like you know those sort of s tier old guard <laughs> punk acts i don't remember the first time that i really discovered them i just know for a very long time all i knew were like you know the big hits should i stay or should i go and rock the casbah and all that sort of stuff and then sometime in between like I happened upon, like I think my dad had a copy of London Calling and that really sort of got me on the path to like learning about them more and I don't know, I, I really like them. Lils, you mentioned I don't, on I Discography don't have, Deep I don't, Dive, you and I are in an ongoing war to see who's the bigger uh, hipster. Well, here's a thrust for you to I mean, carry. You, I'm, you, you I prefer Sandinista over London Calling. <laughs> Oh, I I already fully admit that you are winning over me because you have introduced me to far more bands than I have in, ever introduced to you. Like like the I think the first time I realized we were in a war was when I was just like, "Wow, I like Sparks and The Fall and the <laughs> all these other bands and Cabaret Voltaire and and it was, oh no, Austin's winning this battle <laughs> that I didn't realize we were in until just now." God damn it. 
guys, guys, put 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 down the swords. We no, don't, we don't need to do this. Never. We don't need to settle this over swords, okay? I I will never let go of my sword. Let's yeah, silver fight. apples. <laughs> Let's fight with. God the damn fork. it! You did it again. That sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I already knew about silver apples. Shit. From you. Ha ha. Unshit. <laughs> Anyway, Speaking of shit. Start... <laughs> yeah, good segue. Should we get into this uh, thing? Why don't we? Yeah, I guess yeah. we're, we're going we're gonna to take the hot knife and take a slice, <laughs> take our first slice into this crap cake. Yeah. So just to offer some context for anyone who's not super familiar with The Clash, I feel like it's prudent to like play a clip of like, you know, the sound that they're most famous for. Here's... Yep. Here's some classic clash for you. This is the song London Calling from their eponymous album. London Calling, see we ain't got no swing Except for the rain and the crunch of thing The ice is coming, the sun's zooming in Meltdown expected, the wheat is going in Engines stop running, but I have no fear Cause London is drowning out There's that classic sound right there. One really starting to dip into their experimental period, but you can really see, like, you know, where they would have set a blueprint from that classic lineup of Joe Strummer, Mick Jones, Paul Simonon, and Topper Heaton. That sort of thing. Compare that with Cut the Crap's first track. Here's track number one titled Dictator. What happened? Oh. oh, what happened here? Wait, was that let let that was not a song. That wasn't anything. Let's, <laughs> yeah, let's let's review what we have here. In contrast we, to the we're, we're a music podcast, right? We're reviewing music, right? Like what <laughs> In contrast to the Clash's nominally tight and inventive punk rock, what we have here is like what I can only describe as new wave barf. <laughs> there's, there's certainly there's, wave files there's drum, happening. There's drum machines, there's sound effects, there's that cacophonous synth brass that has no tune to speak of whatsoever. No, it, it, or, or no like sense of dynamic to speak of. One, one second it's deep buried in the mix, the next second it's honking you right in the face like a oh my disgruntled God. goose. I nearly choked on my coffee while I was writing my notes. That bit is so fucking funny. That is comedy gold. When the horns are in the back, bop, bop. It's not so much like a cat walking on a keyboard as it is just like a fat guy just jumping up and down on it for reasons. It just, the, the, the space that it occupies, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I will say this album starts off on a great note because I love this garbage fire of <laughs> bullshit. This song is so incompetent, so doing everything wrong. It wraps around from a disaster to genius for me. Really? That's incredible. Yeah, it, it, it is dumb. All right. It, it is it is poorly executed. That's for damn sure. That's 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 incredibly funny because the more times I listen to it you know, listening to the album over and over again, the more I felt like I was having a panic attack. <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're, you're trying to make out the vocals, which are either 
really heavily drenched yeah, in they're, reverb they're or, buried. or murky. They're buried in the mix. Yeah. Or or in a, you know, a cloud of football lad vocals. Like, the, the, that's what we're getting right off the bat. And then you also can't hear it because there are constant samples going constantly. Like, you're supposed to space them out, right? Like, you're not supposed to just, like, you, leave the tape player going the whole fucking song. You can kind of just vaguely make out some semblance of a song in the background, but it's just kind of hidden behind that mess. Yeah, like like someone left the TV on or something while you're trying to like like listen to like the Joe song. Strummer wrote a Joe Strummer song behind all of that. Like there's and there's lyrics for this thing about like dictatorial regimes and things like that, and it's just buried. Nobody knows exactly what they are because they're so buried, but they're in there. You could barely hear them. Yeah. I have been to harsh noise shows that haven't given me a headache like this song has. Yeah, this one was rough. And I did you listen with headphones, or did you listen just on regular speakers? Because no, I, I just listened. I just listened on speakers. It must be an absolute nightmare to listen to this on headphones, though. Yeah, it, it, can it was, confirm. I, I can confirm. Yeah, it, it was tough. And, and like I said, the the sense of dynamics is just all over the place. So you don't know. Like you, you have to like ride the volume knob because when those, those <laughs> horns come in you're like oh, okay you have to be like, ready for them but then like oh now i can't hear anything now oh, the drums are really tiny so what, what's going on oh no, no, the shit's like fucking just being mixed however like there, there's no consistency happening yeah it's the, the song is absolute nonsense mm. i can't help but have some affection for it though i think because uh, the drum machine reminds me so much of the ones that they might be giants used in their early tracks. Yeah, that that was that that was another issue for me was just the the drums being the drum machines being so at times like amateurish. Oh, <laughs> I got tired of it very quickly, but over. for the first song. well, yeah, that's that's the big difference between the drum machine used here and they might be giants drum machine is they knew how to use their drum machine clearly. And how to produce like music for the drum machine that sounded like you know it has peaks and valleys and things like that. This is just like you know a eight hits on a snare drum in a row. Like like it sounds like a sounds like this weird electronic version of Crass or something. <laughs> just it's pretty ridiculous, especially on a drum machine. It's like. It's like the kind of thing that some that some like third tier math rock band would try to do on purpose, but there's there's no purpose to this. No, there's like that. That was the kick. Yeah, that was that was a really good kick. I liked that. So I guess why did he feel the need to? I guess that was the producer's choice, right? Because he, I, from what I read in... Oh, yeah, the, well, we'll get to him a little later. Well, sure. so, um, supposedly, the drum machine was Joe's idea. It was his response to Mick Jones using them in his band. He just started Big Audio Dynamite. Right, right, Yeah, right. He, he felt like he had to do that in order to compete with him. And I can kind of see the pile of sound we have going here as him and Bernie Rhodes trying to do something similar. The difference is BAD were adventurous where this is disastrous. Yeah. Yeah, well they they certainly thought it was it was supposed to be adventurous uh and, and I guess that will be more discussed when we when we start talking about this Bernie Rhodes guy later on. Yep. Right. Uh so uh, this was recorded in um it was in Germany it, it looks like. I'm I'm trying to figure out why they're on location in Germany. Uh oh cuz I don't, 
Oh, never mind. Uh, yeah, try to figure out like why why they're in Germany and and not doing the whole thing back in England. Because Epic uh, Epic Records chose the German studio because the band's finances were dependent on a number of ongoing legal cases, including moves by Jones to prevent them recording under the name The Clash. Well, yeah, Jones had recently been fired from the band. Right. Yep, and he uh, froze their assets from the US Festival and the Combat Rock album. Mm. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah, because that, that, had, that had just come out in, like, 82 or something. And they, Yeah, interesting. Uh, so you just, he was just doing that to evade uh, all, all those legal cases. Uh, right. That this that there's a really messy backstory behind this album that we'll get to, you know, as we go through the track by track. But for now, let's go to track two, shall well, we? Before we do that, I do want oh, to point out oh, that okay. um, a lot of this album does actually exist as demos and live version bootlegs, and I'm going to be referring to them, the ones that have them, as we go through this. In the case of Dictator, uh, like it's it sounds quite different. It, it's it's unfortunate that they use the drum machine because their drummer at the time pete howard was actually quite good about right. on the level of topper heaton and and listening to the original i think it could have come from combat rock or even their debut it sucks because this period of clash were not bad it's this album that's bad i don't know how i don't know if this is uncouth to say but i feel like doing um i feel like this is something that like we could have another New England centered tribute album, a bunch of punk and related artists recreating these songs, how they were most likely originally intended because the original, the original versions are actually pretty good for most of them, excluding the ones that I think were written during the album's recording. Cause those can't be saved. It's uh, it's funny. You mentioned that I actually have a clip that sort of ties into that much later on that's a, that's, for now. That's a pretty cool idea. Austin. I, we might have to talk offline about that. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't mind trying something like that. Uh, for now, though, let's get to track number two. This is track two, titled Dirty Punk. Gonna be a dirty punk. Gonna crawl your neighborhood. Do the sound of rebel punk. Turn up loud like it should. I couldn't hear your mama scream. She's gonna raise herself away. So my assumption is... The idea behind putting Dictator first was to make the rest of Cut the Crap sound good by comparison. <laughs> yeah, because this, this is a bit of a shift. This, this is like immediately more clear. Uh, my, my note, my first note here was, okay, now I can hear a, a song. Um, yeah, and not like multiple YouTube ads playing at the same time like it was with Dictator. Yeah, I was really worried for, from that first track that it was just going to be like several panic attacks over and over and I, I was wondering if if I was going to be able to survive uh but th it's, this one was actually kind of catchy and like the verses are surprisingly pockety and like the the choruses are kind of you know again we we got those lad vocals happening uh but but they they were kind of like catchy and anthemic I guess still not that great though I gotta say because like <laughs> yeah. The drum machine is still there. It's still very thin and hollow. Yeah, very. And the tiny. guitar has just been produced very, very hazily and muddy. Yeah, no, I, I, I'll agree with that. Uh, not terribly different from like what a lot of rock production was doing around that time. Anyway, it's kind of not a great era for for rock guitar. That I've noticed, like eighty four, eighty five, eighty six. Yeah, not really. It's a funny detail about the guitar tone in this because. 
you know, when the clash started, there were obvious comparisons to the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, who were both influences on them. White Riot is very Ramones in particular, but well, that was like the sort of or example of punk at the time. Every punk act was going to be compared to them for a while. Yeah, but the thing is, the Clash didn't sound that much like either of them. They weren't as distorted in their guitars. They didn't do the loud buzzsaw guitar thing, except for a couple songs. Mick Jones, his tone was, he had more of a siren sound, to quote Elvis Costello talking about him. While Joe Strummer, he just had like a Telecaster run through a music man, and that was it. It was a clean tone. I I can hear this. I can hear this trying to be more like the Ramones and the Pistols. Except what it actually sounds like to me is that corporate-ass punk rock that Sid Vicious did solo. Ooh. Yeah. The one that sounded so much like Billy Idol? Yeah, there's no way to say this that isn't ba- that isn't backhanded. I think it would take a band worse than The Clash to pull this song off. Because punk rock is basic <laughs> at its core. This is basic bitch punk rock. Yeah, I mean, I kind of got that sort of feeling, too. Like, it doesn't sound like a Clash album. It doesn't sound like a Clash record, especially, you know, coming off of, like, how much more experimental and, you know, detailed they had been with their songs up to this point. To just abruptly go back to, like, just kind of a, hey, it's a street punk, oi, let's wreck shit sort of song. Just feels like the kind of shit that, like, a third-rate act might do as a demo or something. Yeah, it was written around the time that Joe's mother was terminally ill, so it was probably written mostly by Bernie Rhodes. It sounds like it because it's so below Joe's skill level. Oh, yeah, the lyrics are terrible. And and just I I thought it was kind of like I took it as being like on purpose on the on the nose and and hokey. But, uh, you know, I I, I, from what you guys are saying, this this is something that's beneath them uh, and beneath their Mm. ability. I think I just was like happy to hear a song and a melody after that cacophony that was the first track so maybe that was part of the excitement yeah that i can't stress enough what a terrible idea it was to make dictator the first track (laughs) yeah i i can't stress what a terrible idea it was to make dictator period yeah oh boy should we move on to try oh sorry going back to what you were talking about with the like th- this is how the whole album is going to sound. We've got these over reverbed football chant choruses combined with these dry, tinny drum machines. This album is actually a good cautionary tale for any newer musicians, producers or engineers who are listening about using reverb well, because this album always uses it wrong. One of the first things they taught us about reverb and delay and all that in college was that when you add it to voices and instruments, it pulls them back in the mix too much of it and you start losing information that's fine if you're going for a spacey sound if you're bernie Rhodes, you're a moron because most instruments in this album are really dry and sound artificial you were talking about the guitar the guitar tone sounding like what guitars sounded like at the time and like even the real guitars sound fake while the choruses are reverb to shit and you can't understand any of them mm. yeah well what it is is in the 80s too it's we're kind of well at this point we're you know halfway through but still a lot of uh digital reverb was was still kind of a new thing uh and that that's what we're kind of dealing with a lot of at this point and and people just not knowing how to use them and and this is mm. obviously we're dealing with a uh un uh unexperienced studio producer uh was this um was this pre or post like Hugh Padham basically you know, holding sway over the drums, over the oh, sound post. of snare drums. Yeah, yeah this ah, is like okay. a good five years after that. Uh, so, yeah, we're, so, so we're dealing with that. And yeah, uh, 
like you said, throwing reverb on things tends to pull it back in the mix. And, you know, there, there's a, a certain way to EQ it and, and level it. So it, you know, you, you still get that tail, but you're still hearing the original signal. Uh, but I was just reminded of someone who, uh, like recorded my friend's band back in high school. So it was just like some kid oh in his basement or something. <laughs> uh, and yeah, recording the drums and, and he just like put so much unnecessary <laughs> reverb on, on everything just like across the whole bus. So it just sounded like you just oh, playing no. in like a, like a airplane hanger, but it's like, you know, supposed <laughs> to be this, you know, like regular rock song, I guess. <laughs> I don't know when you guys are planning to talk about Bernie Rhodes because it's going to be avoidable for this entire thing. But long story short, he had no musical or production experience. So he very much was a kid making it sound like an airplane hanger. Yeah. Like who, who is this guy? Who, where did he come from? I, I couldn't really get a sense of, of where he entered the picture. So um, he was, the Clash's original manager. He was actually the one who brought the band together. He got fired after a point, but yeah. um, around Combat Rock, I think sometime before, the band were having issues, so Joe brought Bernie back. and He, he was basically the Clash's equivalent of Malcolm McLaren in a lot of ways. Yeah, and like he was a little involved in Sex Pistols. I think he was the one who got John Lydon that audition with the pistols, but the clash was his thing. And I, yeah, oh, interesting. There, there's sort of I, I some confusion over whether of, it was his yeah. idea to fire Mick Jones in the first place or whether it was Joe and Paul. It, it seems to have like a bunch of people were like, no, Mick needs to go. But with cut the crap, it seems to be like, this was Bernie's idea that he was going to become part of the clash. He was going to enter the music business himself because Speaking of Malcolm McLaren, oh, around this oh. point, he was having his own hits, like uh, Buffalo Girls. It's, it's a really right. goofy rap song. Yeah, so he, he was just trying to uh, wedge his way in, into the music production side of things uh, in, in addition to management. Boy just had a song in his heart, and he, and he wanted to layer tons of reverb on that song. <laughs> but not where it goes. Not yeah. where it belongs. Oh, and lots of samples. Just like your friend in high school. Yeah. Uh, no samples, I did, though. I got, I got to imagine that if I didn't, like, when he was just, like, loading reverb on, he, he probably could have gotten away with just, like, being like, well, okay, I guess we're a Batcave band now or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's what like, it's supposed, that's what it's supposed to sound like, you plebs. Yeah. Like, when we play clubs, we have to have... The, the sound guy add extra reverb on the drums. Otherwise, oh no, this is right. this is what this is what death rock is supposed to sound like. You just we're not incompetent. You just don't get it. Yeah, and the guy's supposed to. And the point of the band is heavily reverb drums, and the kid plays on insane setting on his Line Six amp <laughs> and his Ibanez seven string. That's the sound. Like. I have a, I had a friend in high school a long time ago that approached me to form a grindcore band, and he wanted me to play guitar even though I'm a drummer. I told him up front, I can't play guitar, and he was just like, that's okay. And even back then, I knew, like, this is a bad idea. That's okay. <laughs> what was the plan? Just... Oh, there was no plan. He never brought it up again. Like, you didn't say, like, why don't you just have me play drums? <laughs> I didn't think to ask about that then. 
I guess that's true. And now I do not give a shit. And that boy is... uh, Seth Putnam of Anal Cunt. (laughs) Beautiful tale. So how about track number three? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Number three, we we get a... uh, we get a name, a, a self call out in the title. Holy yeah, mackerel. This is the theme song to their uh, TV show. <laughs> yeah. Track number three, titled We Are the Clash. We ain't going to be treated like trash. We got one thing. We are the clash. That's not a rally cry. Oh. That's a punchline. <laughs> this is so stupid. Oh, I couldn't even that the, the melody of, of, of the gang vocals are just like they're, they're, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but they're so drenched in reverb. They just sort of have this arrhythmic tube yeah. going, going over mm. everything that really just makes it hard to listen to. And, uh, just depressing, I I think. Like I, I, it's not a depressing song per se, but it just makes me feel sad for some reason. It it, just... it depresses me with its backstory. This is Joe Strummer's "fuck you" to Mick Jones after Mick sued them and yeah, froze their this, assets. This this was supposed to be his big like you know his big uh, victory speech, rallying cry sort of thing, and it just sounds. Like, I don't like to use this term often, but it sounds cringe. <laughs> yeah. It's a little petty. Uh, <laughs> petty is a good no, word for it, yeah. Yeah. We are the clash. There's even, there's even like a very shameless Clash City Rockers callback reference in one of the verses that just feels so cloying and irritating. You wanted the flash? Well, you got the clash. <laughs> <laughs> this is one song around before the album was recorded that I don't think is very good at its core. Mm. You mentioned like it wouldn't stupid. have even like it wouldn't have even been good if it was recorded like with proper organic instrumentation or anything like that. Yeah, because no matter how good Clash Mark Two were live, the band is still missing a big piece in Mick Jones. So mm. this shit just leaves a sour taste, no matter how well I played it. Yeah, Mick Jones's voice is sorely missed on this record because he is the, uh, for me, the slightly more palatable singer. And uh, in, in the when he sings backup on uh, the the Joe Strummer led songs, it's always like makes it a little more pleasing to me. So, how do you guys feel about like the whole sort of football hooligan gang vocals that, like, they pop up throughout the album? I feel like here they're especially prevalent. I personally. I'm not a big fan of it just because the whole thing really makes all the tracks like, I mean, not this one, obviously, but all the ones that have a message behind them sound really, really just loudish and dumb. Yeah. There, yeah. There's a few songs where turn, I think it, it works just sonically, but Pat actually, he put to words something I couldn't describe in that because there's so much reverb, it actually, it loses its own rhythm and it, it just makes it sound like a mess. Yeah, it's it's very it's very fake reverb too. Yeah, yeah, it's very fake reverb and, and, and just put up way too high, so it like it, it kind of feeds feeds back into it and, and makes it mm. sound even more thin and, and phased. And uh, the 
I guess the choice to do this was to bring them back to their early pub days or some shit when you know yeah it was like supposed to be it was supposed to be a call and response thing and it doesn't really have that same effect because you know i've i always i don't don't know if i've said this before but like punk is definitely you know a form of folk music or it has its roots in folk music um so that that was like a big part probably of what gave them the following to begin with uh was that sort of you know the the community aspect, getting people to sing along to your songs, and, and it was probably big part, like I said, you know, big part of what made them famous. But like when we get to this record, it's you know a very in studio production, and it's mm-hmm. not really a band effort per per se. So it just always always one hundred percent sounds disingenuous on every yeah. single track to me. Yeah, the way it's produced, it doesn't sound like organic in the slightest like it just sounds like there's a song there's a song there's a song and then this football stadium just appears from out of nowhere <laughs> yeah it really it, it gets a little annoying after a while and, and i guess it's like friends and family came in to do i, to, I think to it's just the band contribute. but yeah like we made mention of this earlier two key players are missing from cut the crap and their absence is pretty difficult to overlook hmm. we already mentioned mick jones who I believe was fired because he was frequently late to rehearsals and also because of his growing interest in synthesizers, which is kind of ironic considering what came out here. Yeah, also but- missing his top also missing is Topper Heaton, the not the band's original drummer, but is the one most associated with the clash. He'd been fired just before the release of Combat Rock due to heroin addiction. So that left only Strummer and Paul Simonon as the remaining original members. Uh, the new members that are in for this album uh, and for the purpose of touring, Pete Howard on drums, we already mentioned. Also, Nick Shepard and Greg White on guitar. Uh, Greg White went by the stage name of Vince White after Simonon declared he'd sooner quit the band than play in a group with someone named Greg. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That, that's, Strummer, that's a harsh that's a harsh ideology Str- right there. Yeah. Strummer dubbed this iteration of the group The Clash Round 2 and convinced himself he could write music just fine without Jones. And we see how well that turned out. I don't necessarily think he's wrong. It's just this album didn't convince anyone. The, um, going back to that football chant thing, or at least that rallying cry, rallying cry, we are the clash. There are two critic responses to that that I really like. Uh, first UK critic Tony Fletcher said, no, you're not. You're a pale imitation of Sham 69 at the disco. The football chant chorus thing, that was their thing. So I, I hear that second. Uh, Lils, I don't know if you were intentionally referencing him but todd in the shadows on youtube described the song as the theme to a clash tv show oh i didn't even know that <laughs> and that's yeah pretty, that's pretty where i sit it doesn't convince me that they are indeed the clash it's more like joe's trying to convince yeah. himself like i only brought that up because i'm already not a huge fan of when bands self-reference themselves <laughs> like you know like this obviously does like i wasn't a big fan of this is radio clash either like i just don't really like it when bands are just like oh look what we did because like very frequently it's like oh we're trying to be cheeky and self-referential and it's just always comes off as annoying to me yeah th- this is radio clash always gets on my nerves let's see there's something oh um this is something i'm also going to bring up along with re- like referring to the bootlegs and what have you one of the reasons that mick just sort of checked out before he was fired was that Combat Rock was actually majorly edited down from how it was originally going to be. It was going to be called um, Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg. And a lot of those outtakes and early edits have been released. 
and even bootlegs of it, Cut the Crab sort of went through a similar lifespan. It was originally going to be called Out of Control, and then Bernie Rhodes took it, basically hid himself away in a studio and completely remade it into how it is. And it's sort of interesting seeing how, like, how the two records mirror each other. Because Combat Rock isn't actually that different from how Rat Patrol was going to be. This is majorly different from how Out of Control was going to be. Yeah, he just took the master tapes and just sort of stole them away like fucking Phil Spector. Yeah, he's a real Spector over it. Should we move on to track four? Mm-hmm. Are, are you ready for the next <laughs> track, guys? <laughs> track number four. Technically titled Are You Ready, but with weird punctuation. Here it is. This is a sonic level, I think. (laughs) I like this one a lot more than I feel like I should. It honestly it borders on industrial rock borders. Yeah, this is like something that like would make a lot more sense if it was the if it was like Killing Joke or The Fall, doing yeah, something like this. It's got this very driving amalgamate EBM and post punk sound, and like this really neat motoric beat. And it's just like don't don't give it to the Clash though. Yeah, it's like yeah, if, see, it's like if same old Madness era Al Jorgensen covered Thieves. It's so goofy. Yeah, I, it I really thought it is. was. Uh, I thought it was the, the like the messiest track since the first one since Dictator, uh, but yeah, uh, after really? after like a minute or so, and it, I I was like getting more immersed in it. Like I was kind of hearing more of a song, and it, it was a little catchier to me. But yeah, at first it was, it was just very jarring. Everything coming in at once. Uh, that there's some. I think we get some horns in this one, or, or I, I, I can't don't know. This one. I don't think so. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, even if we do get even sense. if we do get some horns, we don't really get some horns. We get keyboards, right? Pretending well, to be horns. Yeah. I feel like if the synths were more distorted or angry sounding, this could have been awesome. But or then it's better. Yeah. But it, as it is, it sounds to me like Kaja Gugu after their singer Lamal was fired. That's a reference only I get. Yep. That is that is true. Uh, the kids are, are really big into Kaja Gugu jokes these days. It's going to be the next uh, the next big chungus, big Kaja Gugu. Check it out. <laughs> Minus Kaja Gugu. Was, November 2020. There was like one point on our Slack chat we were talking about like um, I forget if it was like a Bonnaroo or a Coachella lineup, and one of the acts was literally called like BB Boo Boo or something like that. <laughs> And Chris, Christopher Brown, just immediately shut down after that, after learning about that. <laughs> a real band called Baba Boo Boo? I, I forget what the exact name was, but it was something like that. Just literally just like BB Boo Boo Baba or something like that. <laughs> hey, guys, I, this is my new project. Oh, cool. What's it called? It's called... <laughs> what? It's called bloop de doop de doop boop doop doo Kaja Gugu did get their name from Baby Talk. Yes. <laughs> that that's where we're headed. We're just headed towards baby language. <laughs> Fucking baby times. Get ready. Uh coming coming up next on the Coachella stage. Please welcome. <laughs> <laughs> How would they Spread. punctuate that? Put, they've I don't got, know. Like, diapers on their heads. <laughs> 
still still easier to introduce than chick 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 though. <laughs> Remember them? Probably not. I thought it was pronounced <gasps> the dent. <laughs> I like that better. Yeah. <laughs> so we so like we made reference to like some bootlegs earlier. Um so there, there was a bootleg of demo recordings prominently featuring versions of Cut the Crap songs as they were originally intended because obviously Joe Strummer did not intend for this whatsoever. Uh, the bootleg was called Clash Out of Control and was recorded at Lucky 8 Studios. How big of a difference is there? Um, remember that first song, Dictator, that I hated so much? Here's yes. the demo version from Out of Control. <laughs> I mean, the audio quality is really bad, but yeah. it's a demo. But you can hear the palpable difference it's, yeah, and the like potential that it sounds the like the clash. There was, yeah, as opposed to the tuneless clamor that we got on "Cut the Crap." And like, I kind of agree with what you said in the group chat, Austin. That listening to that after listening to "Cut the Crap" is just infuriating. It listening to the bootlegs and the demos completely changed how I felt about "Cut the Crap." Because for most of it, I was yes. like, this is weird, but uh, I don't know. I've listened to worse. And then I, mm. I listened to the good versions. I thought, you know, maybe I haven't. Yeah, th- oh, I think there, there's a there's potential. Uh, you know, ev- even even me, who who is like a, a Clash neophyte, I'm definitely hearing the potential for like pretty good songs. But it's just under a bunch of literal shit or crap, if you will. Hmm. All right, should we move on to track number five, you think? Okay. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you sounded so <laughs> trepidatious there. Look, this, the sooner right. we get through it, the sooner we're done. More like a, I'm just right. like a saying, yeah, or <laughs> sure. Just say, <laughs> <next track. laughs> the next track. Or the next track. Are you sure about that? Bah, bah, boo, boo, All right. Boo, boo. <laughs> track number five, this one titled Cool Under Heat. That damn football chorus in the wind tunnel again. My favorite this moment, which you <laughs> listeners will never get to experience this, but when Lils played that clip, Patrick sat back and took this gasp, and it was the most enjoyable moment <laughs> for me. Just this pure look of despair. Yeah, I Jesus. mean, listening, listening back to that clip, I got to say my favorite moment is, you know, when it just tries to blue Monday the fuck out of the <laughs> kick drum, just going like, and it just whiffs it. Yeah, the the drums, the the quote unquote drum machines, they're they're literally not doing anything useful. They're, no. they're not doing anything. It's just it's it's a snare drum march throughout the whole thing. Uh, there there's so there's no beat. Uh, it feels like I'm like outside of the pub trying yeah. to listen to this group. On, and like, there's drunk on stage <laughs> and like I can't make any sense of what what he's saying. The choruses are and, just complete. And now nonsense. and now there's also bongos that are louder than the drums. <laughs> excellent, excellent production choice there, Bernie. 
it's almost funny having an album that's so overproduced and saturated with nonsense and still getting a song that sounds unfinished. <laughs> that's what it is. And I, it, I and said it, it just kind of like it... pe- and it just kind of peters out with an unsatisfying fade out too. Yeah. As if like they were just like, okay, we've 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 gone far enough. I, this one felt like a like a demo more than any of the other tracks too. Like like you said, it was just so unfleshed out and and thin and not mixed well. Yeah, uh, I think it's supposed to be a folk punk type thing because um, the band did a busking tour earlier that year. Just acoustic guitars, their voices, and very basic percussion. And there's a bootleg of this song from that tour, and it sounds good like that. Like it is just the band singing the chorus together, but and and it's still a shit chorus, but it worked in that setting. Again, with all that reverb and losing important information, by trying to make them sound big and unified, it's actually done the opposite. It sounds like a bunch of knobs broke into the studio and disrupted recording. Yeah. Yeah. By by it's making one, more by having like a more one, oh, oh sorry. It's I was definitely just one like, of those. <laughs> the, all right, well, it's, it's definitely one of those songs where you can hear how it might have been good. Yeah, and then it just wasn't. Yeah, you lose any sense of intimacy as soon as you put all these crazy, un- inauthentic layers all over it, which is, you know, it, it goes against what he was trying to go for with the with the big football choruses. You know, he, he's trying to go back to, you know, let, let's let's be a. a Let's let's go back to our punk roots and, and, you know, get with the people again. But you're doing a very introverted studio project. Uh, <laughs> like you just, yeah, just like I'm not getting the plot. Yeah, since, since you bring that up, now seems like as good a time as any to introduce uh, this Bernie character that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've already kind of introduced him a little bit, but like done a much of the of record's bad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, much of the record's bad decisions can be traced back to Bernard Rhodes. The As we mentioned, he was their manager initially. He helped form The Clash. He helped get them signed to CBS Records. Uh, Rhodes was initially be fired after the release of their second record. And during this time, he would go on to manage acts like Dexas Midnight Runners and The Specials, only to be invited back to manage The Clash in 1981. After Joe Strummer, who believed Rhodes represented the band's street punk roots, declared that he would exit the group if he wasn't brought back. He would remain the band's manager up to the end after Cut the Crap's failure. Uh, he was responsible for a majority of the production decisions on Cut the Crap, despite having no no experience with music production or songwriting. And even though Strummer remained loyal with him from the start, the two constantly fought over the creative direction. Oh, they fell out after this, at least. Mm. There was a point. Despite there Ro- was a point where oh, someone, one, someone in the band, maybe it was Vince White, because he's a, curmud- a curmudgeon. He told he told directly to Joe, "You did this." Because of Bernie, and Joe was like, "Yeah," and that was it. That was that was Pete. That was Pete, Pete Howard, Howard. Actually, yeah. after the band broke out, Pete Howard said like something to the effect of, "You followed Bernie, and this is where it got you." And Joe Strummer could only be like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> Despite Rhodes' long-standing history of being a punk rock purist from the start, he decided he was one of the he along with Strummer decided they needed to compete with Big Audio Dynamite with all the electronic and sort of clamorous synths and drum machines and shit. And um, I'm not sure how they reached that conclusion, if the idea was to bring it back to their roots. Bringing it back, yeah, yeah I don't know why, because on Sandinista and Combat Rock and some of their non-album singles, they were experimenting with early hip-hop and funk and the like. So it yeah. it wasn't so far out of their of wheelhouse, but it, it just doesn't gel here. Mm. Yeah, I... Something in this Wikipedia article 
really stuck out to me in the recording and production section where it just says, Rhodes, is, uh, Rhodes believed that he had discovered a new genre <laughs> seeking to mix electro, hip-hop, and cut-up technique to replace live musicians with synthetic sounds and layered the tracks with audio from TV programs. There's just something he about... Had, like, he st- had most definitively not discovered a new genre. He had discovered no, Will I Am. He <laughs> discovered Brian Eno. Like... But like seriously, uh, there's just something. And a little about, bit of throbbing gristle. There's just, yeah, oh yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, people were, were mixing those genres up at least you know like four or five years before. Uh, and there's just something about reading something like that and then having such a terribly executed outcome. That's always just, just the fact that he was so naive about it that just really depresses me. You know, thinking about it this time around. Yeah, there, there should be something, you know, endearing about taking such a huge swing with such big ideas. But that's just not happening here. It's all just terrible. Yeah, it's just, well, I mean, it's it's a lack of experience and, and uh, because of that. And an re- overabundance of hubris. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. It's a mix of that classic mix of amateurish and, and overabundance of hubris. It kind of creates this, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect of ability. Uh when in fact they were just kind of bucking to like the worst aspects of you know production trends at that time. Should we move on to track six? Let's why do am it. I? Why do I keep asking you? Why do I keep asking this? I don't know. You're, right. you're you're running it, this bus. Kick everyone down the stairs to track six. That's a that's a t- <laughs> yes. Uh, next stop, track six, movers and shakers. Once again, this is another song where you can kind of hear where a good idea was originally had. And like even like those dippy trumpets sound like something they would have done on Sandinista if they had done it with real trumpets. Yeah, yeah. those I, weird synthorns remind sad. me of now take from Combat Rock called The Beautiful People Are Ugly Too because it has those same goofy synthorns. And uh, up until the 2013 box set sound system, you could only hear that song on the Rat Patrol bootleg cassette tape. Okay, quality. It was hard to find a really good rip of it anywhere. Still sounded better than this. Yeah, yeah. I thought this one kind of sounded like the Cars, uh, like like Shake It Up <laughs> really? era, the Cars or something, <laughs> like just a little bit. Oh boy, something like Hokey. I think it's the the addition of the Hokey synths. No, I'm like like go back and, and listen to that album. It's kind of similar in, with the the drum production and everything. Uh, mm. Again, we we got those those big absolute lad choruses again. Uh, but but otherwise, yeah, this one was like kind of catchy and. Having those little synths kind of poke in gave me some like melodies to to latch onto at least. They were like a little better mixed than some other keyboards on the record. Yeah, I will admit that this is one that did get stuck in my head for a little while after listening to the album however many times. Still not very good though. Yeah. I gotta say. I, I don't know. I've heard a, at least a couple of the live versions and live or not, this song just never sounds right to me. I think there's something about the descending melody in the chorus that sounds unconfident, unconfident or just off sync. Hmm. And this is definitely the worst version of this song. So 
I don't know. I can't get on board with this one. So in the credits of the record, the brass is credited to a group called the Irish Horns, who are a brass band that regularly collaborated with The Clash on various occasions. And they also performed on records by Katrina and the Waves, Graham Parker, and Desmond Decker. And in the case of this track, I gotta say, uh, no. No, they didn't. <laughs> that is very clearly a farty brass synth preset on the album. No, like that's, the Irish that's Horns, Miles like Davis. The like the Irish horns just popped into the studio ready and raring to go, and Bernie Rose just shoved a Yamaha into their laps and said, figure it out. No, that's that's real Miles Davis on the trumpet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> real Miles Davis, famous for sounding Latin tinge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean when you when you need that sound, you you bring in the, the real the real deal. As opposed to false Miles Davis. No, the real one, not the false one. Why Miles Davis? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he wears a purple jumpsuit. I would walk 500 miles, Davis. <laughs> nice, nice. So this song is noteworthy for its opening lyric, The Boy Stood in the Burning Slum, which is a reference to the famous English poem Casa Bianca, which is used in the context of the song about people rising up from poverty to find purpose. This was a line described by music critic Sean Egan as a piece of unconscious self-parody that's probably the worst line ever to appear on a Clash record, specifically calling Strummer out on this line because he was already an incredibly successful rock star. Uh, fellow critic Tony Fletcher also referred to said line as excruciating, but that fortunately for him, not enough people were listening to be truly offended. I, I guess, but like, wait until track 10. Oh boy, oh boy, track 10. Though speaking of music critics, since we're at the halfway mark for the record, how about we dredge up a couple of critical reactions for this record? Uh, most critics deem that in the absence of Mick Jones and Topper Heaton, Cut the Crap was more akin to a Joe Strummer solo record and a particularly crappy one at that. Uh, Joe Sasfi of the Washington Post said, The revised version of The Clash sounds like a pale and ghostly facsimile of this once great band. Our bestest frenemy of all time, Stephen Thomas Erlewine, said of the record, they sound like a parody of a classic punk band, and that this is all formulaic, tired punk rock that doesn't have the aggression or purpose of early Clash records, let alone the hardcore punk that the new band was now competing with. Uh, in a retrospective review, the website Louder Sound declared, if there was any justice in the world right now, somewhere on a street corner in England, someone would be holding Bernie Rhodes by the collar and kicking him repeatedly up the arse for what he did to cut the crap. And punknews.org said in their retrospective review, I am about as big a Clash slash Strummer fan as they come, and it's so bad that, I, that even I have a hard time acknowledging this thing. Critics were justifiably unkind to the songs on Cut the Crap, with the exception of one lone track, which was often called out as the singular highlight on the album, which we'll be getting to in a second. Yeah, it's so frustrating hearing all the shit getting dist dished out for this album. What really frustrates me is that some of the outtakes and early versions from Rat Patrol, those have been released. We're never going to hear how these songs were supposed to sound like outside of bootlegs. And I wish we could, because there is good material in here. It's and like Joe, he, he's not blameless, but he gets a lot. He gets a harder end of the stick than I think he deserves. And I, there's there's a redemption arc in here that he never got. Yeah. Uh, and obviously he's he's long since passed away. Yeah. So it's like what 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 would be the point except, you know, because the rest of the clash as a as a brand aren't, you know, they, they have no uh like no tie to this song they're they're not beholden to these songs at all and they want uh, nothing really, to do with it 
Yeah, and they want nothing to do with right. it. Why would they? Like, why would Mick Jones want anything to they, do with it? They didn't why even acknowledge go, it for yeah, a long time. Yeah, why would he time. go through the energy of, of you know, re-releasing demos? Uh, and then, like, what, like the Joe Strummer estate, uh, you know, they probably are more interested in, uh, you know, his solo material, which is a lot more celebrated. And, you know, you, yeah, I, it, it's it's tough to say who would actually handle that, uh, like, releasing that sort of material, though, because it's not, like, in the Clash canon, technically. Mm. It's probably up in the air if there are masters that are still unmolested out there somewhere. So, as I mentioned, there was one track that critics frequently, you know, called out as the one good track on this album. I don't know if I necessarily agree with them on that, but here it is now, track number seven, This Is England. This is England. definitely not a terrible track that's for certain i don't know if it's like the highlight of the record necessarily yeah i think that uh that rating is a bit uh overrated <laughs> I, I i i made the mistake of, of reading about the album before listening to the album so I, the track was overhyped i think in my head and then when i got to it it was like this just sounds like the rest of the album to me i guess i'm not really seeing what stands out about it i'm still hearing the the over reverbed you know uh football team vocals i'm still hearing the cheesy drum machine i'm still hearing you know it it, it still it still sounds like billy idol to me it still <laughs> feel yeah uh i i my like, note was okay it's eyes without a face but written by an actual punk yeah <laughs> like the one thing that i feel like separates it from the rest is that you know the lyrics are actually communicating a really cogent sort of message because it's all about like, you know, alienation during Thatcher England. Right. Um, and you know, they, they, and, and it actually conveys its message instead of just burying it to the back. Yeah. Supposedly Bernie actually gave the band more input on this one. And because of that, I I think it's the one time the production doesn't drown out or ruin a good song though. Bernie's certainly still trying. But it's yeah. I, I guess I don't. I, I I couldn't really connect with it. I think because it just felt like the rest of the album. I think despite the production, maybe because of the band's input, what works about the song, Joe's vocals, and I, honestly, I think the lead synth line, those managed to stay the focus. Um, the live version was a more guitar rock and a bit more ska, but I think the song works as an angry ballad like this. I would definitely say that this one of all the tracks has the best vocal production. Yep. Where, like, you can actually, it's actually palpable the sense of alienation and disillusionment that's coming from Joe Strummer at this point. Because, like, he was dealing with a lot of behind-the-scenes shit. Like, you know, his parents would, his parents had passed and he was dealing with the lawsuits and all that sort of stuff. And he was probably, grip, like, having to deal with a lot of guilt from having fired, from having fired Mick Jones and Topper Heaton in the first place. Yeah, uh, apparently yeah, by like, the end of recording he had just checked out. Yeah, I mean, we... You, you hear a lot on the on the other side of things and, and think, oh, well, you know, he you know, he he fired Mick Jones and, and, you know, that's just the end of it. And, you know, friendship cut off. But, you know, yeah, you, you, you don't you don't really consider that, you know, these dudes were friends and, you know, this is like a broken relationship now. And, you know, that that can that can, you know, be an emotional setback or just something that really, uh, 
you know, can weigh on a creative uh, production like that. You know, I can see where that affects it. It's not a complete sad story, at least, because very soon after they did make up, um, Joe was actually trying to get Mick back during production of this album because he was so distraught over it. But Mick refused. But uh, at the very least, they did make up and Joe Strummer was actually very heavily involved in Big Audio Dynamite's second album. Mm. Yeah, so I think, you know, that they were probably still, yeah, still a lot of strong emotions and, you know, wanting to, you know, secretly probably wanting to make up, but, you know, they were just, you know, their their pride was just too much at that point. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, given that it was, they, you know, made up so soon after is, you know, probably still pretty intense at that time. Hmm. All right, here's track well, number hang eight. On. Before we move on, I've ac- oh, actually have oh, a, sorry. I have a sorry. weird detail about This Is England. I don't know if... You two noticed it, but it's possible the song was sped up half a step. Because really, you can just tell Joe's vocals are a bit chipmunked. Um, someone on YouTube uploaded a pitch corrected version years back. They dropped the pitch from E flat to D, and it does sound more natural. I tried to hear if that happened in, in any of the other tracks, but I think it's just this one. Uh, maybe because yeah. it was going to uh, be a single. That's a common. Uh, that's a common mastering trick, and I think with. With something like this song, it was probably super muddy and, and too slow beforehand. So they, yeah, they speed it up. And uh, yeah, we're dealing with a lot of tracks too. So, you know, probably just trying to cram more uh, audio on, on one side. Anyway, here's track number eight. This one titled Three Card Trick. From a to the mill, the mill I sing the songs out kind of feels like another one that might have had some potential if not for that hokey drum machine hand clamp it we got a little more clarity with this one uh so this could have been something. a sandinista outtake it definitely had more potential than it's given here the drum machine ruins this one for me it's way too loud and dry i think yeah. out of all the songs destroyed by the production this is one of the more subtle tragedies because it's probably the least different from the original yet it's still audibly worse it's a sterile mm. off-putting mix in the first place. Every live bootleg, even the ones that are hard to hear, still sound better and rock way more than this version. It's kind of funny that this one sort of slipped through because when like, when Bernard Rhodes basically took over production on this, he was very adamant about expunging the band of any and all old influences of like ska and reggae that were starting to become present on Sandinista. And yet this one just sort of slipped through the cracks. Yeah, I was going to say that this one feels a bit more post-punky, which, you know, I guess would be more heavily influenced by, by the ska and reggae end of, of things that, you know, kind of had a big influence on, on that scene later on. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Austin, too, where there was something distracting about the drum production uh, that, that ruined the overall enjoyment of, of listening to this one. Yeah, those, those hand claps stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> yeah, like, like just, yeah, a lot of high-end... Uh, not being a thumb properly. that's sore from too much hand clapping. Ro- Rhodes, I, we can all agree that Rhodes was kind of a piece of shit, right? A bit. I yeah. mean, in, in terms of, of uh, during production. the production of this album, I mean, at the very least, yeah. I sure. mean, like, I mean, at the very least, he was a piece of shit to the new guys. Certainly, um, new guitarist Vince White and Nick Shepard weren't brought in to record until it was time to record overdubs, and by that time, the album was almost completely over, and they hadn't been informed. And Paul Simonon and Pete Howard never actually appeared on the record at all, despite receiving liner note credits. 
All of Simonon's bass parts were performed by an uncredited Norman Watt Roy of the Blockheads, while Howard's drums were the drum machine. Yeah. See how well that turned out. Uh, yeah, right. The only time the band R- shows R- up on the album at all is in the bonus track, Do It Now, which only occasionally shows up anywhere. Rhodes was especially awful to Howard. Like, he treated the drummer pretty miserably. Like, originally, Howard was encouraged to play what he wanted, but Rhodes would constantly just, like, turn down his artistic choices, flippantly declaring it to be too reminiscent of things they had already done. At one point, Rhodes entered the booth mid-session and just began to smash up Howard's drum kit unprovoked. Man, yeah, so he just really, he really loved that drum machine so much that he thought that drummers Apparently. were just stupid babies or something. Yeah. The <laughs> no, removal of Howard... We got drum machine now. We don't need drummers no more. They're stupid. Oh, it's I, I a robot, this. and robots are better than people. <laughs> well, I got this little beat here I could try to play. Might, might give a no, little character. No, I like the robot. I'll I, I just try a little dip to do to do to right here. No, <laughs> I'm a robot. <laughs> he really likes his robot. He got it for Christmas. Pop quiz, what's my favorite craft work track? <laughs> is it is it the robot? It's the robot. Yep. Austin's just staring at us like we have two heads. Season four, Jukebox Zeros. Thanks for tuning in. Yep. <laughs> uh, the removal of Howard's drum parts was a frequent lamentation from critics. Though he was no human metronome like Topper Heaton had been, critics knew he was a prodigious and talented drummer, and to replace him with a drum machine was, in the words of music historian Chris Knowles, like replacing a Maserati with a matchbox. Joe Strummer deeply regretted allowing Rhodes to expunge Howard from the album and vowed never to use a drum machine again after that. Yeah, that's pretty disrespectful. And, yeah, the, uh, and, and, like, just a poor choice in hindsight, but um, at the time, a dick move. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to play these next two songs in succession because I feel like, not, not necessarily because they're interchangeable in sound, but I feel like what they represent as songs under the Clash banner kind of makes them very similar. They're interchangeable in quality. Yeah. Here's the first track, track number nine, titled Play to Win. And here's track number. <laughs> Hi, Gunter. The chat. Help me. Aww. Thank you. <laughs> I don't want to be here. He doesn't and like here's track number 10, titled Finger Poppin' with an apostrophe. I hate this pile of ass. Oof. Oh my god, it is a pile <laughs> of ass. It took me several listens. Just referring to play to win, it took me several listens through the album before I ever wrote anything about that. I don't hate yeah, it, but I don't the, know what it's going for. For the amount of times that I listened to it, the big takeaway I got was that these songs and Dictator feel like the absolute purest distillation of Bernard Rhodes' hubris. <laughs> so, uh, Play to win. Uh, my note for that was uh, 
little samba sections with the castanets and the cool bass line were, were, were like pretty neat. Uh, Wait, but then ha- again, hang on, hang on. Cool bass line. It was like, well, yeah, I don't know. There's like a little. Fucking that was not a bass. cool bass line. It was thin and reedy and sounded like shit. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to find. <laughs> there was someone was trying to play an instrument. Okay. Like this I'm not sure if here. they were. In this weird, sedate, music, concrete, noise fuck. All right, whatever. It was that, oca- that occasionally breaks out into a half-hearted chorus. I long I for guess. the prairie. I don't want to be in the studio. Okay, but okay, but finger popping <laughs> was a travesty. Yeah, that Across was the no, board. That was no better whatsoever. No good. And that and there's badly cluttered mix of bongos and slap bass the with slap insipid bass. lyrics about dance floors. I'm trying. So I, yeah, whoever. That There's guy no who way they Strummer got to that uh, no, that guy no who they got to hire Norman Nor- Norman Watroy was just like way too overexcited to to go and play slap bass on a Clash record for some reason. Like, oh boy, oh, I wonder it's if, so foolish. I wonder if both of these tracks they were trying to do something like Sandinista, just going that purely weird and experimental. But it sounds more like the mediocre B like Play to Win sounds more like the mediocre B sides that got cut from Combat Rock. Like first night back in London, finger popping is just a fucking yeah. roadside toilet of a song. <laughs> I've struggled to think of a scenario where it would work. Maybe if they played it more like their attempts at early rap, like Magnificent Seven. The problem is it's so below everyone involved. This is, an, mm. you're, I think you're right, Lils. Um, this is another song that doesn't seem to have a demo or live bootleg. So I think it's from the point in recording when Bernie was in full control and Joe had clocked out. Mm. Yeah, it's just with the with the slap bass, quote unquote, and and. The, the title being finger popping and don't talk it's, shop it's, finger pop it's so on the nose and like who why did they think that that was cool like what is this song about like how how is this i almost like, like the instrumental and then i hear you know, any like, line of the lyrics it's just immediately unsalvageable yeah this that like play to win that's really what Rhodes considered returning to their roots that's how Rhodes interpreted a punk song or at least one that falls within his weird boundaries at the time. That I like I didn't know that constituted a punk song. Just an aimless mise en scene conversation punctuated with a disconnected chorus. About longing for the in prairie. Fact, let, let, in fact, let's let's try that right now. Let's let's just write uh, let's like let's write a Bernie Rhodes punk song right now. Let's just start having a conversation and just uh so like Pat, you've been like making lots of, you know, like during the quarantine, you've made a lot of pretzels and stuff, right? Yes. Tell us I, about I made, that. Oh, I made a lot of pretzels. I went to the store and and uh, I mm. went to the coffee store and ordered myself a cold version of their coffee, and they put it into a cup mm. for me. And I took How was that, that? Sip, and it was. Did you get any mixins with it or something? Nope, just black, and it just it, black, it woke just me straight up. black coffee. Yes, and it woke me up. Was it good? It was very good, and I gripped it. So that coffee, how was that? It tasted (laughs) well. It tasted pretty well. Uh, (laughs) Pointing at girls! (laughs) Oh, boy. The gentleman who sold it to me uh, requested that I have a nice day. And I said, you know what? I wasn't that's, going to, but now I'm going that's, to. That's very nice. Yeah. 
got to do what I can for the people, you mm-hmm. know. Finger pop. Finger pop. <laughs> yeah, that was a note. Uh, so we kind of teased about this a little earlier about, like, this kind of ties into the whole, your idea about doing a, you know, a good version of Cutting the Crap. Um, I don't know if this necessarily falls into it, but during my lookup on YouTube, I actually managed to find a YouTube page belonging to a band called The Crap Cutters, <laughs> whose only thing seems to be making good versions of songs from Cut the Crap. Wow. Like, I don't know if this is better. Nece- I mean, well, obviously, it doesn't take a lot to be better. I don't know if this is, I don't know if this version is good necessarily, but, like, here's what they did with Play to Win. Like, whether or not you think this version is good, it's worlds closer to how it should have sounded. No, that sounds more like a real song. Yeah. was was kind of enjoyable, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my yeah, if you're if you're interested in checking out more, just look them up on YouTube. They're called the Crap Cutters. Like they've they've basically done like, you know, trad punk versions of all the songs on Cut the Crap and it's worth a Including Finger Poppin'. Oh yes. I don't have a clip of Finger Poppin'. Maybe I should have brought one. That should have been the first thing you took. <laughs> or dictator yes. for that matter. Oh boy! Oh boy! I'm gonna have to check those out and like, I I still don't know what dictator is. <laughs> it's not a song. <laughs> is that Scott <All> Stapp? Right. <laughs> we got baseballs and hot dogs in place. <laughs> it's place. game day. We're gonna do all the hot dogs. The Let's go, Marlins, make us proud. <laughs> so track number 11. Here's track number 11, titled North and South. Keyboard. Oh my fucking god! It's a fucking DX7. And that weird whistling synth in the background. Dictator is funny to me. This isn't funny anymore. This is Bernie taking his middle finger, sticking it up himself, swirling around, taking I think the biggest shit on the album because this was originally one of his best songs. This got like this track got singled out by critics as one of the better tracks, and I'm thinking, do you hear that fucking electric piano? No, that that DX7 is unforgivable. It immediately timestamps it. It's a fucking Brian Adams ballad being sung like (laughs) drunk karaoke football team. You know, this this one the the lone night. This one the lone track not sung by Joe Strummer, but by Nick Shepard. I don't blame Nick because look what Bernie did to it. It's horrific. 80s cheese that sounds like it's off a straight-to-video VHS about not talking to strangers. And it's like that mixed with the rough, like, Cockney, you know, Cockney lad vocals, Just it really just doesn't make any sense. It's so... It really is just... It feels like a fuck you, but 
not in a punk rock way, just more in a, what are yeah, you it doing? Does, <laughs> it just makes it sound more ballady than I'm sure it was originally intended to, and it absolutely is not a good fit whatsoever. And it was not mixed well whatsoever. No. Like, that that's yep. part of the problem, too, is it's way up front, and, like, there there's no sense of, like, dynamic compression put on it, so it's just you're getting, like, every single attack. It's, it's like, 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 we were... You know, like behind the scenes, like while we were listening to it, I was just like mashing my hands down, like, you know, like a five-year-old. Just <laughs> and then, and then keyboard. we all joined in. Because yeah. what else could we As do but do. join the disaster? I f- we we simply had to keyboard cat. So yeah, that's disappointing that this was originally supposed to be a, a stronger track, but then it, it's incredible how in- instrumentation and production can just suck the wind out of, out of a song like that. Yeah, like This Is England, I think this song is supposed to be like a lament for the state of England. Everyone is in poverty, and by trying to make right. it sound like a sad ballad, it sapped all the emotion out of it. It sounded better just as a good, uh, lyrically sad punk song, and Nick Shepard, at least like I, th- like I think he's singing with joe strummer that's what it sounds like to me but um you can hear more of nick's voice and i think he made a nice higher pitched counter uh, counterpoint to joe in the same way mick jones did yeah like this just it sounded like saved by the bell <laughs> that's all i can fucking think of when i when i heard those keyboards zach attack hmm. so we've talked quite a lot about the lead up to the record and the production of cut the crap uh before we wind things down with the last track we should touch on the aftermath as mm. well because it really puts a Really fucking depressing end quote on Oof. this mess of a story. Yeah, I, I read it like right before we started and it, it gave me a, a whole new perspective. <laughs> yeah. So after Cut the Crap's release, Joe Strummer was understandably devastated by what Rhodes had done to the record, as well as the critical disappointed it. Tw- di- <clears throat> as well as the critical disappointment it generated. Some critics even pointed to the record as definitive proof that the punk movement had failed. Adding insult to injury was that the public largely blamed Strummer for the production choices instead of Rhodes. The album was produced by Rhodes under the pseudonym of Jose Unidos, which audiences did not know was an alter ego of Rhodes and not Strummer. In an attempt to clear his head and distance himself from what he perceived as a major failure on his part, Strummer took off for Spain, putting a major barrier between a tour that Epic Records had intended for the record. Strummer refused to promote the record for the changes that Rhodes had made to it. Likewise did Vince White and Pete Howard, still upset by their shabby treatment from Rhodes. Uh, During Strummer's absence, Rhodes was under intense pressure from Epic to promote the record, to the point that he even floated the idea of replacing Strummer with a new vocalist, hubristically declaring, The Clash has always been an idea. Now how to take that idea to the next level. Wow. Oof. Jesus, that that is bleak. It was a complete non-starter, however. Rhodes suggested the idea to Paul Simonon that he should take up Strummer's spot, but he adamantly refused. Paul Simonon is no Joe Strummer. It, it's funny because um, there was supposed to be a video for This Is England, but I, I imagine by that point, Joe was already out of the country and nobody else showed up, so it didn't get filmed. I mean, not to like, you know, slight Paul Simonon, he did write Guns of Brixton, which I think is one of The Clash's best songs. Oh yeah, songs, he could write songs, but, he couldn't sing. But he's he's no replacement though. Absolutely not. Then in October of 1985, Strummer reconvened with the rest of the... the, Let me try that again. Then in October of 1985, Strummer reconvened with the rest of the band and simply declared, it's over. He formally dissolved the clash from there and gave each of the remaining members a thousand pounds each as severance. All right. And then then they they could kind of just move on from there and uh, 
he went on to help out Mick Jones with his uh, with with the uh, um, sorry big audio dynamite. Yep. The name of the group. Pretty pretty much. Yeah. I couldn't find any like you know real sort of projects of import from uh, you know the other guys, so, Pete Howard, yeah. Vince White, and Nick Shepard. So that's unfortunate that you know they came this close to like you know genuine rock stardom only to mm. just fade into obscurity because of Bernard Rose's hubris. Yeah, I didn't realize that Combat Rock came out so far into the '80s. I, I had it in my head that it came out like like in '81 or, or '80 or something like that, but it was in '82. So, yeah, we, we were we were kind of already in into the decade. Uh, I think Joe Strummer, if, if I'm not mistaken, like kind of picked up doing doing his solo stuff like not too long after, right? Because he, um, he did that track for uh, Sid and Nancy. A couple of years later, I remember he did a few things and he did the soundtrack for the movie Walker. But after that point, he actually sort of disappeared until 99 or something. And then he started up. Um, yeah, the that Mescaleros. Was the Mescaleros. Yeah. Oh, that's when Mescaleros started. OK. Mm. All right. To wind things down, we got track number 12. This one titled Life is Wild. appropriate that this sounds like cheesy uncut music <laughs> yeah exactly to a fucking rodney dangerfield movie <laughs> and then, then the ending is just like really fucking weird and scary i didn't yeah like that. that was that was like i interpret it as that trying to you know trying to get the same effect as like a big sort of mosh pity rock ending sort of thing but with a drum machine and it just does not work in the slightest yeah, yeah. I mean, unless it was just like a piece of, of studio trickery, it just sounded like weird and and, and disorienting, and and I was glad when it ended because it was giving me a panic attack, just like the album started. It's a good thing this is the last track because I'm over it. I looked up yeah. the lyrics, my eyes glazed over. The chorus came in, my ears glazed over. You two yeah, keep talking about production all you like, want. It. This is another track. It took me forever to write anything down for the notes. I'm I'm just ready for this to end. Yeah, definitely. I mean. I mean, like, ostensibly, this is another one that might have been improved with more organic instrumentation. But listening to that clip again, I'm not even sure if that's the case, just because the lyrics are so listless and uninspired and just completely bereft of any sort of viewpoint or personality. It's like this wouldn't have even been like, you know, MTV punk. This would have been like a this 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 would have been a fucking Cars song for sure. Oh, yeah. For for. uh for heartbeat city that i mean i was kind of hearing that on a couple different tracks and and not in a good way it's not good no i i i couldn't remember anything of note about life is wild it's just we're getting more of the same same problems just not with as much uh substance Bernie roads this yeah <laughs> okay so why don't we get to our final thoughts to just close things out and finally put this to bed why don't we uh pat do you consider this a worst of all time record? You know, objectively, no. Uh, it's it's difficult to listen to, uh, and I I would not be interested in really listening to it again. I I think the amount of times I did was enough. Uh, but reading more about the history of it, uh, I'm not I'm not enough of a Clash 
fan or even like I don't really know enough by the band to make an assessment that it would be the worst of all time. But I feel like as a as a historian, I, I should say that this probably is uh, because reading about that and, and the hubris of it and uh, it fails on multiple levels and, and takes uh, you really hear the the potential for certain songs that, that could have been so much better with, with better production choices. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say it's the worst of all time. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely a fall from grace for, for a group that like had just released such a, you know, smash of an album beforehand. You know, you still hear rock the Casbah on classic rock radio, not just, you know, alt rock radio. It's, it's a bona fide by like, classic rock hit now, which is, is a pretty big deal, you know, as much as you give shit for classic rock and me, it had crossover appeal, uh, for them mm. to go from that to something like this, uh, is, is just, uh, I could, the, the failure was palpable just even from someone who's kind of getting more acquainted with the band now. Uh, so yeah, it, it sucks. All right, uh, same question to you, Austin. Is this a worst of all time record? (sighs) (laughs) Oh, boy. So despite Are You Ready and This Is England accidentally working for me, I'm going to say yes. Um, I didn't think so for a long time, years even. And then in preparation for this, I sought out the bootlegs, and every new one I found made Cut the Crap worse in a new way. And then I played a great live cut of North and South back to back with the album version. And that's when the album became irredeemable to me. Now I can't hear anything other than butchery. The The thing is, it gets brought up every now and then on the show, what counts as worst of all time. And a lot of the albums you've talked about at worst ended up mediocre. And the grand majority of recorded music in the world is just mediocre. So if it, that's correct. So if an album fails, that doesn't mean it fails in a special way. Like, it's rare for an album to fail on every possible level. Angelic to the Core is an outlier. And Cut the Crap doesn't fail on every single level, but instead it's one of the breed where it had plenty of potential talent and maybe even good songs going in. It just took one specific element, usually one specific person, to sync the entire thing. Fred Durst in Results May Vary, Eddie Van Halen in Van Halen 3, whoever Greta Van Fleet's singer is, Bernie Rhodes in Cut the Crap. Joe's not blameless either, and I'm not convinced Out of Control would have been great, certainly not on the level of their debut or their peak, but I can believe it would have been at least combat rock level good. Um, As it is, Cut the Crap isn't completely unlistenable, but it does piss me off too much to be redeemable. Hmm. As for me, I pretty much agree with both of what you said. Um, The first, I think I listened to this album in some total, maybe about six times leading up to our recording. And the first several times, like, I just remember getting really, really frustrated and angry listening to it. And upon more repeat listens, that anger gradually turned into a general upset and malaise, and now a kind of sadness that this is the way such a major act would have to close. And that this is what would be bookending their legacy. Like, I think if I had to listen to it any further times outside of the context of this podcast, I would just get really deeply Mm. depressed. Like, there are a few promising moments and one or two tracks that kind of drift into, yeah, this is kind of good territory. But the balance is completely offset by the amount of just god-awful and tone-deaf decisions that were made by Rhodes and not stopped by Strummer. 
Like I would def I mean like obviously Strummer had a lot of things on his plate between like his parents passing and all the guilt that he felt from, you know, kicking out Mick Jones and Topper Heaton, but he could have done something more. I don't know. Maybe it would have been different if he hadn't checked out, but I don't know. Like, I would definitely consider this a worst-of-all-time record, made all the worse by the fact that, in retrospect, the chance that it could have been something better is there. There's no guarantee that it would have been, but, you know, the thought is yeah, there. Yeah, it's... I'm almost surprised Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg is the more famous Lost album, because those early mixes and outtakes aren't that different from how Combat Rock ultimately came out. They're just longer-winded. These are so different from how Out of Control was going to be. It's just this whole post-Mick era of The Clash has been rejected by history, so we may never hear what those songs were supposed to sound like. Even most of Rat Patrol yeah. has been released officially. Maybe we might have we might just have to do that, uh, you know, quote-unquote tribute album after all. <laughs> I'm in. D-tribute. I mean, I know... I mean, I know there's also the crap cutters, but uh, we can still do it because they did it, and you can't. They didn't donate to charity, and that's what this album do. That's true. We can be the doo doo slicers. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not be the doo doo slicers. (laughs) Uh, Pat, what would you say is the best or least bad track on this record? Uh, Least bad, uh, because they were all bad. I didn't. I didn't like any of them, to be honest with you. Uh, I usually at least find one song that I like on an album. I really just couldn't. Uh, so I'm actually going to go with "Play to Win." <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, and I, I. I think it was just there. There were like the little sections with the castanets that I thought were like kind of fun, uh, and that was about it. Like everything else, like melodically, sonically, it's just like so many bad choices. I. I was really struggling to find one that I. That I could stand by so it was less of a favorite track and more just an mvp moment like pretty much like just that moment was like the only thing that i found that i kind of perked up uh everything else was really just bland is that is that is that in reference to something pat i don't know what that is uh old men yell at cloud on the zero science network see i was gonna make a joke and then i just said it (laughs) Check it out at zero-science.com. Austin. Synergy. Austin, what was your best or least bad track on this record? Are you ready? It's goofy bullshit, but it's my kind of goofy bullshit. I kind of have to agree with you there. Are you ready was my pick, too. Uh, what was the worst track on the record, Pat? Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Dictator. Uh, really, the, the hubris uh, and right off the bat opening with it was just insane uh it just completely completely illegible and <laughs> unlistenable but finger popping was a very close second because <laughs> you know this is a band that i, I think they they sh- joe strummer I, I feel like should know better uh i don't know very much by the guy but like i know that he's you know pretty celebrated lyricist and uh musician respected musician um and you know all around pretty intelligent dude uh that was just stupid. Like, and wh- <laughs> who thought that 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 was a good idea? Uh, so that was, yeah, either of those two. Uh, same question for you, Austin. Uh, worst track. I have two answers, and they're right next to each other in the track listing. Actually, uh, the track that's the most shit is "Finger Poppin," but the track I hate the most is "North and South." Yeah, really? hearing that live version was the point where I knew I hated this album. <laughs> 
Oh boy, my pick is Dictator. That was that was the one track on there that actively made my head hurt. Yeah, I think and, when I heard that, I thought I was going to be getting more of that for the rest of the record, and like we kind of were, but like graciously, we, we got like kind of brought us back in with with a like a more of a song song. But yeah, that was a really rough way to open an album, and uh, one of the more confusing things that we've had to review for this show <laughs> you know at least the album Which doesn't is, dick you around you know right away it's going to be a, it's going to be insane yeah just not mm, in a fun it's way it's like okay no and I, I think when i you know you pop on that track it's that this is the jukebox zero <laughs> <laughs> that's all i can say a bona fide oh man that was a slog but we made it thank I, you so I, much for being back on the podcast Austin. thank you very much for having me i'm sorry i suggested this one but the clash were very important <laughs> to me and they were on the list so it was gonna have to be this one it, if it's on our to-do list we would have gotten to it eventually could not you cannot hide from yeah, it eventually taking this ride with us uh is there anything you want to plug yes i do any any potential future podcasts that this might be the big sort of reveal for. So glad you asked. Synergy. So I am hopefully uh, starting this month, in fact, the same month this goes up, I'm going to be hosting a uh, sort of conceptual spinoff of Jukebox Zeroes on the Zero Science Network called Sophomore Slumps. You guys talk about the famous worst albums of all time, but like I mentioned, a lot of music is just mediocre, and there's plenty of not worst of all time, but just famous disappointments and that's what i want to talk about the most notable sophomore slumps in music um the clash is something that's they're a band that that could be a potential example um our first episode is going to be the stone roses second coming i had christopher g brown join me for that i've got pat on for mm. another episode about asia i'm gonna hopefully get lils yep. on for an episode about uh arthur brown that's gonna be so like I know at some point I'm going to run out of material and it can't just be famous second albums. I'm going to have to sort of stretch the brief. And for Lil's, we're going to talk about a second album that didn't even get released. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we had to stretch our definition of uh, worst as well. So, you know, that just happens. Yeah. We live but in yeah. a world where we review Baja. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we got to hear the pilot episodes Austin recorded and they all sound great. And I can't wait for them to officially go up. Yeah, as part it's, it's of the a great Zero Science show. family. Uh, yeah, re really well put together and edited, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, real excited for that one to drop. It's because I have, I have anxiety and a stutter, so I really need to script myself. No, it's good. That's that's how it should be done. I I do too, but I I don't work with notes because I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to plug anything, Pat? Uh, yeah, I mean, check out the other shows on the Zero Science Network, like Old Men Yell at Cloud, uh, which I'm also a host of. Uh, what is that? What is that? <laughs> what are clouds? We, we just talk, we, we talk about our farts uh, and 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 uh, and McDonald's and, McDonald's and farts that you got from McDonald's. Uh, exactly, big and big Jim's clouds. crippling gambling addiction. Yeah, it's a real problem. It, it, he he's gotten us to you know roll dice during during a sh during a show too, and it, that's a real problem. How come you guys haven't had Austin on an episode yet? That's a very good question. Uh, no, I, I actually... I'm, pu I'm putting you on the spot during the plug section. <laughs> With me. No, we, we on camera where I can stare at you. I think, uh, we, uh, yeah, we, I think we're going to have you do like a Scott Walker album or something. Christopher is a huge fan. I've been uh, suggesting it, yeah. Walker, so we should have you uh, do Christopher that. also su uh, suggested a sophomore slumps crossover with uh, a Franz Ferdinand album that 
that was actually going to be our uh, pilot for sophomore slumps, but it's a little too loose of an example. So that may be a crossover with old man yellow cloud. Mm. Yeah. No, and yeah. I like that record too. Uh, and uh, yeah, check out must watch movies, which is a new uh, monthly film podcast that I'm doing ki- kind of monthly. I think I missed July or something, but uh, things are crazy with, with, with the, the, the pandemic and all. Uh, so mm. yeah. Uh, uh, check, that out uh should have another episode of that coming out later this month september uh and then musically uh i'm i've got a official patrick s barry solo album uh that Ooh. i put together some songs for it's gonna be like my first time using my, my real name uh like branding a music project as such so that should be uh out sometime later this fall uh cool. get, get got all the songs together for that yeah um, I'm going to plug, uh, yeah, go check out the other Zero Science podcasts. Um, go check out my other podcast on the network that I do with Scott Curland, Hell is a Musical. Um, we got another episode coming out this month. I just, just might as well make the big reel now. We're going to be doing Popeye next. Yeah. <laughs> the musical oh, Robin Williams film debut, Drenched in Cocaine. And uh, go check out the uh, Fatigue album I put out uh, last month while we were not recording the podcast. Uh, yeah, that's from my Dark Synth Pop uh, project. The album's called Illusory Things. It's yeah. got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of songs about like mortality and identity and stuff on it. So yeah, go check that out. Our good friend and gambling addict Jim Schultz uh, does a drum solo on a track. He sure does. So that's fun. Using dice. Uh, yes. yes. He has a bunch of dice that he just throws against the drums and they just kind of bounce off each other. And somehow it turns into a drum solo. Yeah, I, I saw him, him trying to roll like dr- mm-hmm. a, a couple of drum keys in, into a uh, roulette wheel one time. I think he was uh, he had been up all night or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I don't think he likes me giving away his secrets. Yeah, <laughs> his secret gambling secrets. Ah, <laughs> uh, if there's one thing worse than gambling secrets, it's secret gambling secrets. <laughs> secret gambling secrets. Okay, I think I think it's time to uh, yeah put a let's, bow on this one. <laughs> oh boy, uh, that's season four. You expect more of this? Yay! Season premiere, more Our more se- episodes coming up, more awkwardness, more yep. awkward spacing, more just saying whatever. Our theme song is "Sunny Day" by the band Froggy and the Friendship. You can check them out at froggyandthefriendship.bandcamp.com. If you have an album you want to suggest for us to review, or would just like to leave us some feedback or a comment, email us at jukeboxzeros at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com/jukeboxzeros_podcast, or on Twitter at twitter.com/jukeboxzeros. You can find us, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or check out our archives on the Zero. Zero Science main page, Juggalos. Jukebox Zeros <laughs> is a production of the Zero Science Network. For more great podcasts, go check out zero-science.com. That about does it. <laughs> that about does it for I'm Jukebox just doing Zeros. Like hype I, for you now. <laughs> no, you. I don't need a hype man for that part. <laughs> okay, sorry. That just write out some new shit. Season four. That about does it for Jukebox Zeros. I'm Lels. And I'm Patrick. And remember, I look for the prairie, for the world frontier. Good night. Thank you. Good night. To the miracle of the life. Miracle. <laughs>
Zero Science. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.